So we've come uh, to the place in our uh, look at uh, 2 Corinthians where we're up to chapter 11. And um, chapter 11, verses 1 through 15 is what we're going to look at today. Uh, let me just uh, warn you a little bit bef- before I read this text because uh, if you, as we read this, if you get a sense that uh, there's a lot of sarcasm in this text, you'd be right. Uh, Paul is using sarcasm in a way to get the Corinthians' attention and to have them feel a sense of their own foolishness and silliness and, and the way in which they've been behaving, been behaving and what they've done. So since there's sarcasm in the Bible, this has to be one of my favorite uh, texts. So, uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll get it when, you, when, when I read it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Um, let's go ahead and put my notes up there. Um, one of the things that you may not have thought about yourself and one of the things that we almost never think about ourselves is uh, uh, that our hearts beat faster uh, than our minds can think. In other words, we're easily swept up with things that are emotional, that are appealing, that seem powerful and impressive, even if they're untrue or worse yet, misleading, or that might uh, cause um, the gospel for us to lose a clear vision uh, of the gospel from us. And so uh, one of the things that Paul's getting at here is, uh, and by using kind of sarcasm and the way in which he's talking, is to try to get a sense of humility about what's going on. Because people have risen up in the church in Corinth, and they are saying, you know, Paul's just not 
not that great. He's not that impressive. <clears throat> and so um, we think, I'm certain today, uh, if uh, we, we think that if we were to meet Paul, we would be wowed. We'd be super impressed. He would just knock our socks off. But apparently, he wasn't that way at all. Um, people said that, you know, his letters were impressive, but uh, in person, uh, he was unimpressive. Um, one of the uh, great things we got to do uh, over the last couple of weeks is we spent a lot of time driving around in rural uh, North Carolina and Tennessee. And one of the things that's exciting for our family is to read road signs for churches and for little stores. I guess you could call them that. Two stand out, one in front of a church near where my mom and dad live. The sign said out front of the church, call 911 because our pastor is on fire. <laughs> you can see why that stands out, right? I was like, oh, my goodness. So uh, that one, yeah, we, yeah, enough said. I, in fact, that kind of summarizes the whole thing about this text, actually, I think. Uh, but the other one that we saw that we were, that we still are chuckling over was outside of a little store uh, outside of Roan Mountain, Tennessee, and the top line of the sign said, Jesus is coming back soon. And the line right under that said, hot pizza and live bait. <laughs> Which, honestly, in the scheme of things, I think I like the second one better than I did the first one, frankly. Uh, there's, Yeah, because the second one is actually true. Um, so, so as we uh, look at this this morning, one of the things that we have to recognize about this is, is that our, we have an in, in, uh, inherent tendency, uh, because we're competent, because we're smart, and because we're gifted, to be immediately attracted to whatever appears to be competent, smart, gifted, and attractive. That's just what we go towards, and that's what we move towards. And so what, what Paul is getting at here is, is that the gospel's not that. That is not the way it is. And so what, what you have to see about this is, is that while I want to be entertained, what I'm really attracted to and what I'd really rather have is to be impressed. Impress me. You know, put on a show of power and competence and, uh, you know, get, get my attention. And, and the fact is, you know, we, we fall into that trap all the time. We, uh, we think we don't, but what, what, what happens to us is, and what's happening to the church in Corinth is, they are being moved to uh, uh, fall away from the gospel uh, because a Jesus is being proclaimed to them who's not a Jesus who is a servant. A Jesus is being proclaimed to them who is a Jesus who was not poor. A Jesus is being proclaimed to them as someone uh, who uh, uh, and, and the gospel that they are believing is not about death, the death of a savior on the cross. It's about something else. I, one of the things that I did over the last couple of weeks was sit in the waiting room of a radiation oncology uh, practice. And um, 
I, I think everybody should do that. I think everybody should do that. Um, uh, just because you, it's, uh, it's a hard place. It's a suffering place. Um, the people there, uh, if there's anything that's impressive about them, they're impressive by their, their pain and their suffering. Um, and yet I was reminded this week uh, as I sat there that these are the kinds of people that Jesus found himself with. And he was most often with needy, unimpressive, actually the kind of people not only that we don't see, but that we'd rather not see. And that's who he identified with. So, so as we, as we look at this, we have to, we have to ask the question and what Paul's getting at here is what kind of gospel is preached about a crucified savior? Because he's afraid that because of the impressiveness and the giftedness of these people, what's happening is the gospel is kind of sliding off of their hearts and they're falling for what is powerful, what is impressive and what gets human attention, right? So what we have to do here this morning is this whole thing requires some humility. It has what, what has to happen is I have to be able to have self-awareness enough to be able to say that, you know what, what I see and what moves me and what's impressive to me may not actually be true, impressive, and certainly ultimately might not line up uh, with, with the gospel. And so uh, let's, let's look at how he uh, uh, lays out his case here. So he has reasons for concern. The first one is this. He says that he had betrothed the Corinthians to Christ. Now, what that means is, what does a father do with his daughter, right? That's, that's what a father does. He betroths his daughter to a man. But it's important to see why, why this image mattered to him. Because when a father betroths his daughter to, uh, to another man to be married, the father takes a back seat. He is no longer the most important man in that girl's life. Well, he better not be, you know. <laughs> so, so, the, so the fact is that's why he's using this image. What he's saying here is, is that Jesus is the one that's important here, not me. My job was to simply facilitate that connection. And now that that connection is there, I still love you. I still care for you. But the most important uh, figure in your life now is going to be your husband. Secondly, he says that he's not inferior to the super apostles because he lacks skill in speaking or because he refused to take compensation for the work he did there. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think uh, the skill in speaking, we, we read the epistles of Paul, we know that he wrote most of the Bible, and we think he must have been impressive in person. And yet the book of Acts, which is very pro-Paul, right? as you might expect, recounts the time where he preached and he droned on and he droned on and he droned on and a young man sitting in a window fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. Now then Paul raised him from the dead, but wow, he was boring. Apparently. Uh, when I was a young man, uh, I read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And it literally is one of the few books I can say that changed my life. And I read that book regularly. Uh, and so I had an opportunity to hear J.I. Packer speak because his book was so impressive. Oh my. Oh my. Oh my. He's a really old British guy. 
And this is a criticism of me, not of him, but I was like, what happened between the read, the writing of your books and uh, this talk you're giving? I'm dying. I'm dying. You know, I'm going to drool on myself if you don't pick it up. Well, he never picked it up. Secondly, the other thing that they criticize him for is that he must not have much value to offer. He must not have much to say to them because he doesn't receive any compensation from the work that he did uh, there in the church in Corinth. So in other words, these super apostles are coming and saying, look how impressive we are. Look at what we have to offer. Look, Listen to this message that we have. We're not boring. We're exciting. We're entertaining. We're impressive. And so you should pay us. Paul comes and says, I proclaim to you the word of the cross. Don't pay me. I'll get my payment elsewhere. So even that was used against him as saying that what he had to, to say was, uh, was unimpressive. Thirdly, he says he believes that they are being spiritually seduced. In other words, that what's happening to them is that the pure gospel and their grasp on who Jesus was and what he had done for them is slipping away from them. Uh, and he uses here the, the biblical example of Eve and ultimately, by extension, by Adam. And so this is a, this is a great thing for us to, to remember. So when the woman, this is from Genesis 3, saw that the tree, the tree that she had been warned not to eat the fruit of, but she looks at it, it's impressive because the tree is good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Not only was it good to, to, to eat, but it was beautiful. It was impressive. It drew her eye. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, you can get smart. You can get power. You can get some part of what this tree has to offer, right? Uh, it's beauty. It's impressiveness. I want that. I want to be like that. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Paul's afraid that that's what's happening here, so that these super apostles who are preaching a gospel that's about human power and about human impressiveness and human giftedness is, uh, uh, is causing these people to fall away uh, from the, the truth uh, that he had uh, proclaimed to them. And so, so the thing is, he uses here, he uses language that is almost embarrassing uh, in, uh, in the way in which he's talking to them. It's almost his, the, the sarcasm and the irony that he's using is he's trying to get them to see the kind of elemental, fundamental thing that's going on. Um, one of the things that we do in our family is we, we, we like humor, we like wit, and uh, we often use that to talk about our spiritual struggles. And so... Last Friday, my son and I were helping uh, my brothers-in-law because uh, we were we were at a wedding. Um, my nephew got married. Great guy, just just a wonderful young man. Uh, but we were going to put up a 45 by 20 tent for the rehearsal dinner. 45 by 20. Now these guys, my brothers-in-law uh, and my nephews are skilled blue-collar workers. They're really good with their hands. They're in anything they can't fix. They're in anything they can't build. So that got us in trouble because why read the instructions when you know how to do this? And so it's hot, and we're out there working, and uh, I'm talking with my son Tate, and I'm like, wow, you know, this 
I'm experiencing a great deal of temptation, which in our, our family means I'm really angry, I'm really upset, I'm very frustrated, and I'd like to hurt someone. <laughs> and he said, well, Dad, why are you experiencing temptation? And I said, well, this is hard. No one's reading the instructions. But at the bottom of this, I'm really struggling with resentment because where were these people when we were putting your wedding together? He goes, ah, Dad. There's an honest confession. He's like, oh, Dad, I don't go there. I'm like, really? You don't go there? He's like, no, I hear your temptation. I get tempted by that too. But when I'm tempted to think that, you know what I think? And I'm like, here it is, you know, this great spiritual truth. He thinks, yeah, I don't go there because I think ah, I'm better than these people. <laughs> so I just don't go there. <laughs> I, and I said, well, you know, I'm glad that helps you. Not really. Because I'm certain that more pride is not the solution to my, to my temptation here, right? And so what I, want you, what I want you to hear today as we look at this, and this is why Paul is speaking this way, is more pride is not the solution to our issue. Our issue has to be to see Jesus and to see the cross and to see the gospel for what it is, Right? Now, one of the things that you have to understand about this whole dynamic between Paul and the church in Corinth centered upon uh, this whole issue of power and competence. The Corinthians, much like West Enders, liked power, liked competence, liked giftedness, liked these things that seem to be very impressive. Paul begins his Corinthian correspondence, right? Um, this is from Fleming Rutledge. She says, according to Paul's Corinthian correspondence, there was something about the gospel of a crucified Messiah that attracted the scorn of the worldly and the sophisticated. This was true not only of those without, but also those within the church, the Corinthian congregation in particular. And see, one of the things you have to see about this is, is that nobody in the first century is prepared to see and believe and follow someone who was humiliated and shamed by dying on a cross. No one. We've sanitized it. We, we've, we've actually kind of Christianized it in a way to make it a palatable thing. That's why Paul says over and over again, he's not ashamed of the, of, of the, of the gospel. He's not ashamed to speak the word of the cross because any right-minded person, any person who is kind of in the stream of the culture and, and wants to impress people and wants to gather a crowd will never speak about a cross. But Paul's ministry is first and foremost about the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, see, we read that and we think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
That was their problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, those Jews, you know how they are. And those Gentiles, you know how they are. But we, we're Christians. <laughs> we, we don't have that problem. It's not that to us. But the fact of the matter is, what he's getting at is, is that we, we lack the ability to see the absolute necessity of the horror of what God did on the cross to save us. Because if that's the case, then my power, my wisdom, and that which seems impressive to me is of no value. That it required the death of the Son of God hanging naked on a board to redeem me it has to say something to me about the nature of the gospel, about the nature of the ministry of the gospel, and the way in which we entrust ourselves to these things. But to those who are called, and it would require a call of God for, for anyone to take the, 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 the message of the cross seriously, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, what he's talking about here is something that is, is spiritually discerned. It is something that the Spirit of God has to work in us. Otherwise, we will fall prey to what the Corinthians fall prey to all the time. Wow, that looks impressive. Wow, that's marketed really well. That's slick. That, that, looks, that looks super impressive to me. And that doesn't mean that that, that preparation and, and clarity and all of those things aren't important. But the problem is that we are so often attracted to spectacle and to show when what we have to proclaim and the God that we are proclaiming is a God whose most profound evidence of his love and his care for us is an execution death on our behalf. So, so what he does here is he proclaims in weakness a gospel, good news. He does it just as he is, just as God enables him. And he goes and he speaks plainly, clearly, without a lot of show, without a lot of uh, other kinds of demonstrations. Simply the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so, so his opponents then are proclaiming a gospel that's in strength, that's impressive. They're, they're using rhetorical styles and, and things like that that draw a lot of attention to themselves. Their pastor's on fire, call 911, rather than, here's Jesus. Let's look at Jesus together. He's, he's what matters. He's the one that counts. He's the husband. He's the one that you belong to. He's the one who died and rose again for you. So what we have to see about this is that Christ is crucified and he's now risen, right? His, he, and so what Paul did with that is he simply reminded the Corinthians over and over and over again that what we are about, what the church is about, is not displays of worldly power, not displays of worldly influence, but displays of grace because our Savior came as a servant. And died a miserable death, a horrible death in shame to set us free. So the Corinthians viewed Christ as being revealed in power and not in weakness and suffering. And what, what Paul is saying to us here in this text is, is that the gospel 
overturns all of that. It changes all of that. So it's not simply a matter of what is preached. That is important. But who and how the integrity of the gospel is maintained and the humility and the necessity of drawing attention away from our gifts, our abilities, our talents, our power to the one who died for us. You see, I think, I think it is a, it's, a, it's a powerful picture for us of, of the way in which uh, the gospel works. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to read to you uh, the words of institution for the Lord's Supper. And that's why the Lord's Supper is so key to the life of the church. Because what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, again, to uh, the Corinthian church is something worth, um, worth us thinking about. What does he say? He says, that, uh, quoting Jesus, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why does he do this and tells us to do it in remembrance? Why do you need to remember? Well, you only need to remember those things you tend to forget. And what might you forget? What you might forget is that I am where I am and I am who I am because Jesus Christ died. I need to remember the Lord's death. I need to remember that it was a necessity that Jesus Christ die for me. And what I need to remember by that is not just that Jesus died on the cross to set an example or to show us something, but that Jesus was actually doing something for me by being shamed, by being beaten, by, by giving up his life for me. Um, one of the ways that I, I think is uh, powerful and profound for us to do that is to ask ourselves the question in humility, what is it about me that would require the death of the Son of God? What is it about me? Not what is it about human beings, Not what is it about society or culture, but what is it about me that would require the death of the Son of God to redeem me? When we ask that question, the seduction of power and impressiveness falls away. And the real beauty of the atoning work of Christ becomes clear to us. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's confess our sins together by using the prayer of confession based on uh, the Ten Commandments. Pray with me. O Lord, our God, who brought his people out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery and by Christ delivered us from sin, you have been faithful to keep all the promises of your covenant. But we, O Lord, have been a stiff-necked people who love unfaithfulness. We have loved other gods before you and become their servants. We have not worshipped you in spirit and in truth, and so we have mocked your glory in heaven. We have used your name in vain and profaned your reputation on earth. We have desecrated your Sabbath because we have not trusted you to give us rest. We have not honored our fathers and mothers And so we have proved ourselves rebels. We have hated our neighbors and murdered them in our hearts. We have made adulterers of ourselves in the lust of our eyes or in the deeds of our flesh. We have stolen honor and wealth and privileges that are not ours. We have lied and falsely accused For we love gossip more than truth. We have coveted blessings you wisely and righteously gave to others. O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have not kept your law. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it uh, to his followers. I wonder if part of our tendency to be drawn to what appears to be powerful and independent and impressive isn't because deep in our souls we're ashamed. And so if we can attach ourselves to something that is impressive and wows uh, others and uh, is distracting in that way, we don't have to deal with and come to grips with the fact that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. I wonder that. I wonder if that's not part of the, the depth of what's uh, going on here. I came across a story um, a few weeks ago about a convent uh, in uh, post-war, World War II uh, Poland bunch of sisters, a bunch of nuns, quietly serving Jesus in a convent where their convent was broken into and many of them were savagely sexually assaulted 
by Soviet troops. And about nine months after that, they started having babies that were born from that. It was a devastating situation. So the leader of the convent, the mother of Superior, uh, you can't have nuns having babies, convinced uh, the other sisters that she would take the babies out and give, as soon as they were born, and give them to families that were surrounding the community. But her shame was so great, she didn't do that with the babies. And that becomes clear. And so what happened as a result of this was because of the number of orphans and the number of um, uh, 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 babies that were being born, an unbeliever suggested that the solution to this problem would be to have the babies, to raise them in the convent, and to allow the orphan children that were around them to come and join them. And that would be the new mission that these sisters would have. And so the shame that they experienced was transformed by an act of, a, of grace to become something beautiful and life-giving that reflected the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ bears our shame so that we don't have to be seduced by that thing that would cover our shame. He doesn't so much cover our shame as he bears it so that we can be set free. That is why he wants us to remember his death. That is why it is the safest and best and most healing place for us to be is to remember I needed a death to atone for my sins, to set me free from my shame. Jesus bore that. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other place to turn, but to him and his work, that I invite you today to join with us and to proclaim his death until he comes. So that, so that by the proclamation of his death and our participation in that, you can experience the freedom of the very power and wisdom of God displayed in the death of Christ for you and for me. What a rich thing that we get to say Jesus died and in that shameful death is my victory over shame and sin and death. As the elders come down front uh, this morning to help me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. The bread on either side of the stage is bread that is gluten-free if you require that.